Good afternoon, good morning, good whenever you are. Welcome to episode three of Sophisticated Savage. Uh, today's episode, we have uh, martial arts instructor David Brown. Um, he happens to be my martial arts instructor, but he uh, is currently a PhD candidate in neuropsychology um, here in San Antonio. He is a lifelong, lifelong martial artist, I believe over 35 years in martial arts, uh, primarily in um, uh, Wing Chun and Muay Thai, um, but he also has some training in other uh, arts as well. This was a great um, conversation um, between JC, myself, and, uh, and uh, David. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, David's a very, very smart man, um, very knowledgeable, and not just in science and martial arts, but just in life. Um, so I hope you get some le- lessons out of this. I hope it's um, enjoyable for you, and I hope you keep coming back for more. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Episode number three of Sophisticated Savage. We're joined here today by my martial arts instructor, David Brown. And of course, JC is here as well. Hello, hello. Thank you for being with us. Oh, right. My pleasure. Okay. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. All right. How are you doing? I'm good. Tired. Yeah. Wind up a Friday. <laughs> yeah. I, before we get started, I do want to ask, is baby brain a real thing? Is what? Baby brain. Baby brain. Yeah. Um, Only because I... Define baby brain. Like forgetting a very important piece of recording equipment <laughs> when it was right in front of you on your yeah. bar when you're leaving the house. Yeah. Do you want me to get real technical? The, psych- <laughs> the psychobabble is you only have so much attentional resources, right? right. So if you're split you know, a million different ways, which right. kids will do for you, you start to forget things. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And when you can't prioritize even you know, the most important things in your life just goes crazy out okay. of control. Okay. So sure. Baby brain. I've never heard it called that, but we'll, <laughs> I feel like I've Dylan been, has baby brain forgetting things. There's more a new more term. <laughs> yes. Right there. Uh, so I first want to start off. So, uh, uh, David Brown is, is my martial arts coach, uh, instructor. Uh, I started taking Muay Thai from you five years ago mm-hmm. or so. Um, but you actually moved down here from Bellingham, Washington, to pursue your PhD in neuropsychology. Mm-hmm. Um, can you give us a quick background, just about first how you found martial arts? You know, I know you have a long history of martial arts, and then how you transitioned into getting a PhD in what I think is one of the harder programs and whatever kind of PhD medical school, yeah. <laughs> all of the above. Um, so I started. Uh, let's see. So I started about. 42 years ago in martial arts training um, as a young man and uh, that really helped kind of balance me out um, definitely so I was an awkward kid and uh, it gave me a, a refuge and I fell in love with it um, so I, I pretty much grew up in the dojo uh, went up to the Pacific Northwest initially to get a degree um, in Chinese history of all things but it coincided with you know, with my passion for the martial arts. And uh, I did go to China. I studied the handover. Um, my main style at the time, I started in Korean arts, but my main style was Wing Chun Kung Fu. Um, and I studied with Dr. Dung Ting for quite a while. I was a disciple with him for about 28 years before that organization kind of blew apart. 
Um, but I was also, because I started in the Korean arts and kickboxing, um, very attracted to Muay Thai. Um, as well, we, you know, at the time, we always studied Eskrima with the Wing Chun. Um, so they were kind of tied together with the Latosa um, family and the Lung Ting family. So um, after after college, I went, well, I, I did education work for, for quite a while, but um, I was also teaching martial arts. And then eventually I just jumped to being a full-time professional martial artist. Um, I did that, just that, from 93 to 2011. Um, and did it in a variety of capacities. So I had a number of schools in, in the PAC Northwest. Uh, I had a sanctioning body for Muay Thai. Um, had a promotions company. Um, we ran lots of fights and um, had a fight team. So that's actually been you know, just a wonderful thing for me because it's taken me all over Asia. And uh, um, I wouldn't... Uh, there's, there's no better job than being a martial arts instructor. It's just really fantastic. But along the way, you know, after I did um, teaching professionally for so long, you know, it was time for a change. Um, psychology was a natural outgrowth. I think a lot of people who uh, come into martial arts are looking for Mr. Miyagi, and they give you way too much credit for for being some, uh, you know, somebody with some kind of higher knowledge or higher skill. And so I ended up in that counseling position almost always and realized I needed some some serious skills. Yeah, I, I think we talked about that briefly in the last podcast, Professor Fabi. I think mm-hmm. a lot of students, we, we come to to learn mm-hmm. and I think we only see that aspect of the instructor we see this awesome extremely knowledgeable um, composed person mm-hmm. and so I think we do idolize that person and so we must we're, I think as a student we're saying they must have everything together they know what they're talking about so I, I definitely want to learn from them right. let me ask them questions let me tell them about my day like you said we are looking for that um Mm-hmm. That therapist, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. So not only do we want to learn the physical aspect, but we do want to learn professor or, or y'all say Arjun. You want to learn. You want to learn life skills. Exactly. You want to learn how to improve your life, and I think that's fundamental. Even people who come in and want to say they want to fight, ultimately, what they're really looking for is to feel good about themselves, to feel secure about themselves, and to master their lives. Um, so for me, you know, I'm constantly trying to work on myself to be worthy, you know, to be an instructor, um, you know, which is a, we're all swimming in the same pool, but the psychology was a, was a perfect outgrowth for me. Um, and it took me in some really bizarre ways, um, that I didn't expect to go, you know, I'm a clinician kind of in my heart and I like being with people and counseling. Um, but I kind of have an aptitude for the data science and that pulled me in um, and then I got pulled into a neuroscience lab just by sheer dumb luck. And that's probably impacted my life more than anything, doing hard, um, hard science, you know, in, in biophysics and imaging research. Um, you know, that I did not expect. <laughs> sure. Anyway, so that's kind of a brief, but. Okay. Yeah, I, 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 I didn't, yeah, I don't want to, yeah. I don't want you to have to go too far into it. I know it's a, yeah. a lot of, a lot of experience in history. Um, you mentioned, uh, People finding martial arts as a way to kind of learn themselves and mm-hmm. gain confidence. We talked about that in the last podcast as well. Is that f- for me, <clears throat> I was never necessarily a, a timid ch- uh, child or, or a young man, but I was definitely not always uh, 
I didn't always have the most uh, self-confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked mm-hmm. about, I played a lot of team sports growing up, and I mentioned in team sports you can kind of get by by being in the background, especially if you're not the star. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're just kind of one of the, the pegs on the roster. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one really focuses on you versus mm-hmm. in martial arts. A lot of times you're, especially if you're competing, you're one-on-one, mm-hmm. um, unless you're seeing that Russian team combat thing they have now, which has got them kind of <laughs> <That's> weird. That's <laughs> crazy. <Yeah. laughs> but you're usually on your own, and you have to rely on yourself. Um, and I found when I started, and I didn't realize that maybe my confidence wasn't as as good as I thought it was until I started doing martial arts, and all of a sudden uh, you start learning about your own limitations, the lack of discipline that you have that you didn't realize you didn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, and just uh, and some of it's also just being able to have some martial skill that you know you've, if you had to, mm-hmm. you could defend yourself in some capacity. Not that I'm a world beater or anything like that, but I don't f- walk around feeling like if I get attacked that I'm just going to be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're a little bit more calm. Punch. Yes. Mm-hmm. It definitely calm is the right word. I don't feel... Because you know yourself a little bit more. Yes. You know how your body moves. Yes. Right. And the limitations <laughs> I do have that martial arts has helped me expose is... And I knew I wasn't the most flexible person, but it really... Especially since doing the CRT training, the, mm-hmm. the that has really exposed where I'm... Can you flexible. elaborate what CRT is for people that don't know? So, so CRT is, is, is uh, David's um, Wing Chun class he teaches, uh, especially to the upper level... Um, uh, Muay Thai students. Yeah. What does it stand for? I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you just a, a little bit of history on that. So, the the Wing Chun system, which um, I've been a very passionate proponent about, um, has been plagued with organizational politics, and it's just. I mean, it's heartbreaking because there's a beautiful style there, but the people involved in those those circles um, tend to end up destroying each other. So after about 28 years, um, I split with that organization and just went on my own. Problem with saying I teach Wing Chun is that there's, there's all this baggage that comes with it. So I just said, okay, I'm going to rename it to CRT, um, which stands for Close Range Tactics. That's it. But what I do is, is quite a bit different, not necessarily in the technique, but it's different conceptually. Um, and that's because I work with the Muay Thai base first. And that's the right way to do it. There's too many people in the Wing Chun world who, you know, haven't actually held pads for a Muay Thai fighter. They have no concept of how hard somebody kicks or punches. Uh, they just really honestly don't understand fighting. They can do some very intricate stuff. But without the, the base, a good physical base in particular, um, with something like a stand-up art like Muay Thai, they, they'll never make it work. Right, so they need different different things. But you say this, and automatically, here comes the flame mail. You know, here comes everybody out of the woodwork to say, "No, you know, my style is better than this." My wing chun. So, so well, I just teach CRT. That's my thing, and yeah. I'll let you figure it out. And CRT is there's a lot of movement, especially in the upper body. Well, it's really, the whole body. You integrate everything, and when you're tight, it'd be like rolling in jujitsu, and you're on, like, I say, you're someone's mounting you and if your hips aren't flexible there's you're only you're limited to how much you can defend and respond with flexibility issues well it exposes um, exposes where you are functionally restricted yes yeah right especially as a physical therapist i thought i i, mean, I knew i wasn't flexible uh, that that flexible but i didn't realize especially in my thoracic region like you know from my neck 
down or my shoulders down to like my upper back. I didn't realize how tight I was. I was like, it's just yeah. my hamstring. And is that, my, is my that rotation or what, what do you think? What are you talking about? Thoracic movement? It's from, well, it's a combination of things. One is in school nowadays, well, PE is going to go in a way. Yes. No one teaches basic calisthenics. You tend to practice for sports specific things like basketball or football or whatever you're playing. And there's not always a stretching regimen and the stretching regimen isn't, whole body it's static lay on your back stretch your hamstrings stretch your quads it's not functional based like can you rotate and twist your body and 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 do things like a yoga movement kind of would and do a full functional movement it's it's more just stretch your hand it's real basic and when you're doing that all the time then you add on top of that being a student for seven years in grad school you sit in front of a desk and you're hunched over that develops some restrictions and then just lifting weights like a muscle head where you're lifting for non-specific reasons just to get bigger and you're not always it, it may make you stronger in a specific direction but not necessarily so functionally strong with, with that being said is wing chun a looping art or is it a linear art like are you looping like punching like hooks like in american boxing or are you like linear like in karate straight jabs yes it's it's very well. It's everything. My, it's very yeah. It's so okay. The primary thing. The primary thing on that is that it's it's close range. But let me go back to what you were talking okay. about because I want to um, maybe uh, challenge your vocabulary just okay. a little bit. Okay. What you what you're experiencing is not a matter of flexibility. Okay, you're plenty flexible enough. Sure. What you're experiencing in is patterns in your body. Um, that have ingrained with fascial adhesions, all right? So yes. fascias, that, that muscle coating, mm-hmm. normally when it's um, working properly, you know, those bundles of muscles will slide across each smoothly. other. Smoothly. Smoothly, right? Um, when you have a pattern like sitting in front of your desk all the time or a specific injury, that fascia will adhere and pull. Um, and so it makes it very, very difficult. And even if you say, like, sit up straight, a lot of people can't do that because they've been patterned so much here that you pull them up and they snap right back. Well, what is that? Well, that's all of your your fascial structure. Your body is more of a tensegrity structure, right? You ever see the geodesic dome, mm-hmm. you know, in Epcot, you know, Disney World, Disney World Epcot? Yeah. That's a tensegrity structure. So everything is pushing and pulling on each other. And this is what the art's exposing for you. And all good martial arts will do this. All good martial arts will push you up against your walls. Physically first, but also emotionally and spiritually. Right? So when I'm asking you to move, I'm asking you to move in a way that's very efficient with gravity. And you're starting to notice that you know, you're not in alignment. Your body's been you know, kind of warped a little bit from your specific work patterns and your specific athletic patterns over the years. So you've got to get that fascia to break apart some of that scar tissue. And there's different ways to do that. One is through, you know, manual manipulation, you know, do like real deep tissue massage, things like Rolfing or Hellerwork or Soma, those kind of things. But the other is just um, very conscious repetition, um, you know, to challenge um, and counterbalance some of the the patterns that you have, so that was much better stated. That is almost to awaken the muscles you're not using on a constant basis. Yes, awaken the muscles, but also to balance around the joints. So this is something that happens um, with most people, particularly people that bodybuild. Um, you know, so work particular muscles that they like, 
Um, and especially the ones they can see in the mirror. There you go. Right. You know, how come the bodybuilders don't have great backs is because the mirrors don't show their backs. Exactly. So what happens with a bodybuilder? Well, they, you know, pump up their chest, right? So what's the first thing that happens, JC, is your chest starts to rotate in this way, but you're all connected, right? So you see people go this way and then what happens to the neck to compensate. So in, in, for the listeners here, I'm like rotating my chest inward, like big pecs, overdeveloped pecs, right? Well, that has to compensate up and down the chain. So it compensates with the neck, right? And then the spine and then the hips and all the way down to, um, you know, the feet. And so pretty soon you watch the bodybuilder and for the audience, I'm walking here, you know, they're like this, Yep, yes, they right? got that Hulk yeah. walk. And so they're, you know, what they start with here actually starts to turn their hips out and their thighs out just like this. That's why they got that weird gait. That's right. So instead of balancing around every joint so that they work with gravity, that's the efficient way to work. So from, from ankle to knee to hip, all the way up the spine with the arms, the shoulder, the elbow, the wrist, and all the way up to the top of your head, Right so that you're working appropriately, efficiently with gravity. Does that make sense? Yes. So that's healthiest, but it's also the way that you want to move for martial arts because it's the best for combat. But that's not easy to get there. Yeah. You've got to face your stuff. Uh, that was, yes. I I appreciate you challenging my vocabulary because that was I kind of wanted way to better stated. backtrack a little bit to what y'all were saying. I, I think that that is uh, to the uh, point of people joining the martial arts world to better themselves. Mm-hmm both physically and emotionally and spiritually. And I think that's amazing. I actually lost my train of thought while explaining that. (laughs) But uh, no, it's just something uh, like it's going back to the therapist. It's the group. It's a group mentality. Mm -hmm. I want to surround myself. What is it? The peer of five. You are the peer of your five. So I think that's another reason people go to the martial arts. But like you said earlier, you don't know who you are till you get punched in the face. Or you get challenged in these hardest positions of jujitsu, so you might quit, or you might stay. And once you stay and you become part of this group of the five, you want to be either the competitor or the mature crowd. So I think that's a great it's, thing about the martial arts world. It's interesting you brought that up because we've been talking, um, David, about these small groups right. of, of four or five <laughs> small support groups. But JC, can oh, you tell me about the y'all two were talking about yeah, that already? Yeah, yeah. well, okay, tell me what what you mean by a group of five or your the, the, the cliche. You are the group of your five, your five peers. So if you have five friends that are not really doing anything with their life, then you're probably doing the exact same thing they are doing nothing with your life. But if you like, I've told Dylan, I want to find five people that are way smarter than me for your example, and that will actually push me in the direction that I want to go to. Same thing with martial arts. Um, if I go and I train and I can beat everybody up all day long, every day, and I can inflate my ego and I feel good, yeah. Why but I'm, I, yeah, I'm not improving myself. Now, if I go to another group and I'm getting beat up all day long, well, I either got I got a, a swim or sink, you know? So I either need to get better or... Or I'm probably not going to last long, so that's why I'd rather find a competitive group or a mature crowd that is willing to beat me up, but explain how and why and how I can get better instead of another group that you see in some schools where they just beat you up and ragdoll you and then don't explain anything. So that's what I mean, the group of five. Well, you want to surround yourself with people who get the best out of you. Exactly. Right, people who, who lift you up. And, you know, or, you know, a lot of people surround themselves with people that are, they resonate with, but aren't healthy. And so they end up going down in life. Yeah. But part of the idea of martial arts is Kaizen. 
It's a Japanese term. Kaizen okay. is constant, never-ending improvement. Um, and so that is a fundamental philosophy that we're always trying to improve ourselves, you know, drop by drop, inch by inch, step by step. Nice. And so when you have that as one of your fundamental moral precepts in your school, then the school itself starts to work and look like, you know, that, that positive version of the yeah. five. Would you say, Dylan? No, yes. Yeah. No, yeah. I, 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 th- I agree with that. In our school specifically, I've seen that, especially with the varied backgrounds of the people in the school. You know, some of us are into computers. I'm a physical therapist. There's just, you know, law enforcement. There's yep. a range of people. Yep. And it seems to bring out the best of them. And, and as I've seen them improve, especially uh, like, uh, Robert and Brandy in particular, mm-hmm. have drastically different from when I first met them when I first showed up. And I, th- I think I'm drastically different in different ways mm-hmm. from when I first started doing it. And mm-hmm. you get these group of people that are like-minded, have similar interests, but you know also have a lot of differences, but they come together and they learn from each other and they push each other in a healthy way and not an abusive way or a self-destructive right. way. And I found myself just the people I've met and started with my parents. My parents have a varied interest. You know, they're not just into one thing and they seem to find friends that are going to push them a little bit. Mm-hmm. And they always push me into, to not just settling for things. And mm-hmm. you know, I would get not in trouble, but my mom would try to motivate me to do things that I wasn't comfortable doing. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't, if I chickened out, like for instance, you know, joining a, a new basketball team and, mm-hmm. Or something in school, she would never necessarily punish me, but she would definitely like. You need to, you know, try your hardest. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to fail. And then as I've gotten older, I've kind of searched out for people that I find motivate me mm-hmm. in whatever different capacities. Whether it's motivating me to get more physical and mm-hmm. be more in shape, whether mm-hmm. it's motivating me to read more and and control my 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 mental side more, mm-hmm. or just you know, learn a new skill. Um, and, and not that I necessarily shed people that don't do that. I try to raise up the friends who may be stagnant or are struggling a little bit. I try to bring them along with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do, but, but you can only do that with, with people that really want to do it to themselves first. Sure. But I don't mm-hmm. try to harm other people. I don't try to just yeah. like cut people off if they need assistance. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, if they're mm-hmm. negative people, I'm not going to just, you know, stay in a negative situation or a negative group of people just, just because to martyr myself. You want to help as many people or you want to bring as many people you want, but if they don't want to go, they don't, they don't want to go. Sure. Yeah. 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 But that's, but that's what having a large amount of small groups, people that you know, you can influence and they can influence you. And I found that recently, especially with all the things, not to get too political. Cause I don't, <laughs> for the second episode, I don't want to get too crazy into it, but it's a struggle because especially as an, I consider myself an idealistic person. I want to change how people think and influence, but to, to look at 350 million people in this country and expect that I can change all their minds. I had to roll back a little bit and just do it on an individual level in these small groups where they're at work or drip by drip. Like he said earlier yeah, through small groups and then I influence them and then they influence other people. Well, that's, you know, that's the reality is you can only have authentic connection, really connect with so many people. Right. And it's your job to stewardship, you know, to steward those relationships sure. really, really well. Yeah. Um, and you're not you're not supposed to change everybody's mind or be everybody's teacher. Right. 
but there is transcendent power in walking upright. That's an, an East Nin quote. Okay. There's transcendent power in walking upright. So you simply be the best version of yourself, Dylan, right. and you'll be surprised at how many people you influence around you. Right. Now, there'll be some special few that become that resonance circle who you know help bring you to the next level and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. But let me let me um, just throw in something in here because I see that I see this a lot, and you know I've been guilty of this in the past too. You see the internet memes is like, you know, somebody doesn't respect you, just you cut them off, right? Or the toxic people, just take out the garbage and, and so forth and so on. I, I don't believe people are garbage. Um, here's the thing: when you really have a sense of yourself and understanding of your own power, um, you can interact with anybody and not let that bring you down sure all right and that's what part of what you learn in the martial arts is keeping the center and the way i kind of look at it um you know being a therapist i live in the bowels of human shame and guilt um, and fear and anger and anxiety and heartbreak and trauma all of these things and it doesn't really bother me that much because I don't internalize it. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's kind of like the end of the Shawshank Redemption. You remember Shawshank Redemption? Yeah, I love that movie. Right? Morgan Freeman's uh, you know, famous last line. He's the only one I know that could swim through that and come out smelling clean. Well, that's kind of what we're charged to do as people. Right? We're charged not to rid ourselves of anybody we don't like, who bothers us, who's having problems, who's struggling and suffering. Our charge, actually, is to go to people who are suffering and not to allow ourselves to drown by saving a drowning person, but to channel the energy we can. Sure. And in this way, you can walk upright in the toxic world right. and not get poisoned. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, this is, uh, once again, backtracking. The way you just spoke, and I could imagine going to one of your classes, going through a physical uh, endorment, physical hell, I guess. And then you saying something along those lines, I could see how people would want to be like, this guy knows what he's talking about. I should idolize him because he knows what he's talking about. It feels great. I feel great from the workout, but not only do I feel great from the workout, I feel great from what you said. And I've never thought about it like that to people like, you know, I've thought about, you know, not necessarily cut people out, but just reduce the time I spend with them. I wouldn't call it a waste of time, but I really do like the fact that you said, I can spend time with them, but I'm still going to be me regardless of what they are doing and come out on the other end. Well, nobody, should, nobody is going to stop your trajectory on being the best version of yourself, JC. Just think of it that way. Nobody's going to stop you on that. You are constantly improving yourself. And because of that, then you have enough energy to give to everybody else around you. Nice. Right? Not everybody will follow you. But that's also not something you have to, to worry about. Yeah. But let me let me just uh, clarify one thing. Don't, don't idolize me because I'm fake. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. And that's that's something that's very true. Um, I can't tell you the number of times I've had students come up to me after class, you know, or talk to. I overhear him talking to somebody else. How did he know? How did he know what I was thinking? That message at the end here, and in my head, I'm thinking like I'm talking to myself, man. You know, it's like I <laughs> yeah. don't know what the hell's going on with you, but we're all swimming in the same pool. And so if I have an inspirational message for the class, I guarantee you it comes from something I'm experiencing in, in my life. Exactly. Um, and you, you get in a lot of troubles when you elevate yourself, but on the mat, I am one of the students too. I just happen to know where you're going. Right. So I'm the one who's sitting here pointing 
the direction. Yeah. That's what the word sensei means. I like the word sensei. My, my ex-mother-in-law always used to call me Brown Sensei. She never called me by my name. It was always Brown Sensei. Sensei means one who has gone before. Right? And that's the only thing I have to offer you is I've gone before right. so I can point. I'm already loving this podcast. What's that? I'm already loving this podcast. No, it's great. No, we were talking about earlier how I think it would be phenomenal to have somebody like yourself that can have this in-depth knowledge on being sophisticated, but yet, once again, we always say, if something ever happens and you need to use your physical capabilities, you're more than capable. But I've already learned so much. You know, going back to what you're saying about, um, you know, walking upright and kind of just living your, your best life and people will kind of come to you um as a as a uh, person who i don't necessarily consider myself a vocal leader i'm not a i sometimes get flustered when i'm speaking too fast but i like to lead by example so i like to work on myself and improve myself Mm -hmm. and show you know my own improvements and lead that way Mm -hmm. and just lead by my actions and doing what i consider morally right and especially now with the sun um, I, I find also there's a great Alan Watts quote, um, the less I preach, the more I'm heard. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of like that quote because mm-hmm. I find sometimes, and certain people don't like to be told what to do. And at a certain point in time, you're, you're constantly saying, do what I say or do this, do this, do this. They're going to close their ears off versus. Mm-hmm. Especially your son. Especially my son. If you're just sh- doing what you do and you think is right, mm-hmm. you know, if, if their eyes are open, they'll they'll see that at some point in time mm-hmm. and and my dad did that he never really told me what to do but he always would be listening to a buddhist tape in the car mm-hmm. or encouraging me to meditate and now do you listen to tapes in the car i don't but i listen to podcasts with okay. with buddhist podcasts and well, I the do new meditate. version it's the new you, version you picked up i did pick up that. that up the habit yeah. which is your dad was modeling right. that he was always trying to learn right and so now you're always trying to learn. yes yeah. yeah um i did want to go back to what you're saying about um Especially being a psychologist and are teaching a martial, me, teaching a martial arts class, and when you're teaching or you're giving advice, you're talking to yourself and not mm-hmm. just the, the students. As a, a PT, I try not to um, when I'm talking to a patient mm-hmm. or even not a patient, just, just someone who, even a student who comes to me for advice, I try to talk to them like I'm giving myself advice the same way. Or mm-hmm. when I'm, I use myself as an example, so when I'm telling a patient that maybe they need to consider making lifestyle changes to improve their chronic pain mm-hmm. and I don't ever I don't really ever call them I, I don't ever call them like fat or any kind of thing where they would feel shameful <laughs> good <an> example <laughs> yeah, right that, that tends but, to close people exactly. off exactly right. but I use my own self examples like I, I struggle with eating correctly mm-hmm. I struggle with getting active when I don't want to get active especially at the end of the day but I find ways to motivate myself whether it's a, a song whether it's a, you know a quote Whatever motivates you, I try to find things that will motivate me when I don't feel like doing something, and so I can have a reliable way to get myself to get out of whatever rut I'm stuck in that's telling me, eat that candy, don't work out. And so I use myself as an example. So I feel like that humanizes me a little bit more and takes off the white coat, and so patients hear me more, and I don't sit there and just you know make them feel bad because they're, they have a, you know, a some kind of physical issue. It's an authentic interaction, right. and it it helps them to disarm, right? It, right. it gets past the defenses right. because it's very, very easy. It's human nature to, you know, to want to lock down and push push back, particularly if you you don't feel good about where you are or what you've done or things like that. Yeah. So yeah, and, and by taking yourself into that position, 
as, um, you know, they already know that you're authority. Mm-hmm. You know, you're Dr. Bomber. They were sent to you because of your expertise. Mm-hmm. But when you have a human interaction and you connect, ah, that opens up so much more. Right. Yeah. And in, in clinical work, the benefit of that is that they'll share things with you sure. and you get more information. And so you're able to be a more effective clinician. Yeah. Yeah. I find that's the case. I, I tend to, I don't refer to myself as, as doctor. I tend to dress as, I definitely skirt. The, you, you dress in a skirt? No. I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm the Scott, man. That's, that's what I heard. <laughs> I, I definitely push the limits of the dress codes. I wear scrubs and I, I keep mm-hmm. it as casual as possible that, that mm-hmm. work allows. So that way they come in and they see just a regular person mm-hmm. and not, you know. And of course, some, some people in my profession prefer a business attire, like, you know, a suit or a, a slacks and a tie. Mm-hmm. And I, I see their argument for that to some degree because they want to, to give the profession a little bit more. I guess respect in the mm-hmm. medical world, but I I tend to not care about the medical world. I want to focus on the patient, <laughs> right? And they f- res- they respond better when yeah. they're staring at another person, not not a, exactly. a white coat. Plus, you know your your sessions are real physical, right? Sure, you know, you're interacting yeah. with them, yeah. so ties not really that appropriate. Sure. A lot of PTs wear ties. It's it's yeah. there's a lot that, that do, and I mean it's whatever you're comfortable in, and yeah. you can as long as you're doing something for the patient. Mm-hmm. I, I could care less what you wear. I prefer being comfortable because yep. then I'm also comfortable for that person I'm talking mm-hmm. to. I wanted to touch on, um, I was talking to a student recently. She was a high school student from health careers, and she didn't really have a goal to be a physical therapist, but just she was looking into going to uh, the medical school route. But I was got on the topic of burnout and becoming jaded, especially when talking to um, not just patients, but just in general people, especially with the same population over and over again, um, or the same grind, even if it's your spouse or friends, and you have this tendency to get into this routine where you get I mean, frustrated, jaded is what I, I told her. And I catch myself occasionally when it's, when I'm tired, fatigued, getting burned out, especially at work. And I have to be very aware not to pass that on to others. I have to find out a why I feel that way. Uh, and it's usually an issue that is completely unrelated to work. It's, it's a sleep issue. It's a nutrition issue. It's a interpersonal stuff at home issue. Very rarely is it a issue with a specific patient or a friend. It's some other thing. And I'm just, so so you're well suited for your job. You like, you like doing the work of being a PT. Right. And it's not that I I don't like the job, but I told her a lot of times at work, whether it's being a police officer, a teacher, whatever you're doing, if you've been there long enough, at some point in time, you might get jaded if you don't, manage maybe the, I don't know what the, what I'm trying to say uh, I guess the, the right word for it but always being aware of how I'm thinking about things and especially interacting with with other people mm-hmm. and not just giving them a uh, like a canned response so they ask me a question and here's my canned response I don't want to think about what I'm telling you mm-hmm. to be more present and I yeah. you know and especially in the medical field where you kind of get in a rut where you see the same people over and over and over again, mm-hmm. especially in a big hospital system or if you're in a uh, place where you're seeing the same thing over and over again, avoiding just becoming this canned response where you're like, okay, do this, do this, and mm-hmm. a next patient, do this, do this, next patient. Um, I found that's learning to manage that issue of burnout or whatever you want to call it has been very helpful. And I'm trying not to just give patients – hand exercises or home exercise programs 
are, you know, in my interactions with them. And I relate the same thing to cops. Or, you know, you get in the same habit of patrolling the same neighborhoods over and over again and seeing people as the same, just it becomes, I guess, dehumanizing, dehumanizing is a way to look at it. And my advice here is just, you know, prepare yourself going into a field. A, make sure you, you enjoy what you're doing because if you end up getting into it and you don't like it, that's, that's going to be reflected. But then also when you get into it, have other outlets that you enjoy doing so that you just don't go to work, go home, go to work, go home, that you have other ways to energize your mind mm-hmm. and so it's, that will be less likely to be an issue if you're able to pursue other things and get rid of some of that excess energy the excess mental fog or the mental fatigue at the end of the day um, and just be aware of it because it can happen especially in the healthcare field and in, in, in particular and that's good that's what i know so i, I was giving her advice because she's also looking into that and I, what are your thoughts on on burnout or jade being coming jaded with patients how do you deal with that avoid that does it happen to you um especially in psychology i imagine there's a, can be a little bit of that as you kind of deal with the same patient not same patients but no i've actually issues. i actually haven't experienced okay. that um uh well, i imagine you haven't due to the fact of what you just said earlier that you can just literally go through it brush it off mm-hmm. for another term yeah. and come home because of the way you said you just realize you are you Right. Regardless of what you go through, there, there's there's a there's a lot there's a lot that's there. So there's a bunch of different ways to to look at that. But let me go through two big things that struck me. You know, one what it sounds like to me you're describing, Dylan, is in your specific interactions you're practicing mindfulness. So rather than having your imagination stuck on you know, what's coming down the pipe and things that you're anxious about or worried about or whatever, maybe things you can't control or stuck in the past, things that you regret, things that, you know, didn't happen, the choices you made or didn't make and all these things that distract you from that present moment. These are the things that really um, uh, start to shake our mental health and they will impact your your work and, and everything. By being mindful Mindful meaning being just in the present moment, you are significant. You know, you are seeking that connection with the person in front of you. And then you start to understand there are no ordinary moments. It's not just another patient. Right. Not just eh, run them through, run them through, run them through. There's a story here. Right. There's an individual. There's a person in front of you. And when you practice that faithfully, what happens is, you know, you find that you you get a lot of energy because you are significant to this person. Um, you have a purpose. You're helping this person, um, and you're not misusing your imagination or your memory. All right? When we misuse our imagination or memory, we create a lot of stress. Depression and anxiety are like the common cold of of mental health for psychologists. Right. Right. So that's that's one aspect of it. And what I would say is, in order of impact. All right. The five factors that most affect your well-being are sleep, diet, exercise, gratitude, and mindfulness in that order. So if you can get those five things, you've got a big chunk of what it means to be happy and healthy and most importantly, resilient. Right? We want to be resilient, so we can't control everything in our lives Things happen to us. Some people are very good at bouncing back. Some people are very good at surviving. What is it? Well, 
those five things make a huge difference. Mm. All right. So when you talk about burnout, too, well, what is burnout? You mentioned sleep issue. Yeah. Right there. Okay. If you're not getting enough sleep, you're not going to be good for your job. Right. Now, there's a difference between authentic service and false service. My Tai Chi teacher taught me this once many, many years ago. He said, authentic service is when somebody comes to you and they're thirsty. You take your bucket and you throw it down to the well. You hear the water splash. You pull up the bucket and you give them some water. He said, false service is somebody comes to you and they're thirsty and you take your bucket and you throw it down the well and you hear it crack on the rocks and there's no water left in the well, but you pull it up and you try and give them water anyway. So there's a concept of enlightened self-interest. Right? We need to be our best, not just so we can be our best for us. We need to be our best so we can be best for our families, for our communities, for the people that we touch and we interact with authentically. Mm-hmm. That's very, very important. It's very important. So part of the warriorship of martial arts is learning how to discipline yourself to constantly take care of yourself so you are ready for service. Being a warrior isn't about being a badass. Being a warrior is about being able to serve. All right. So what do you need to serve? You need to make sure that your well is full. And when you're talking burnout, right, you're probably not getting enough that you need. So every burnout, you know, every level of burnout is a crisis of either creativity or renewal. Okay? Creativity or renewal. That's what burnout is. That's what a crisis is. All right? So when you hit a plateau, it's because you need creativity or you need renewal. So you need to go back into those things. Now, that said, just the modern lifestyle, um, it it may be that we are not meant as human beings to work as long and as hard as we do, and that that's just plain not healthy. So most of us are running on empty, running on fumes on a natural basis. That's one aspect. Another aspect is that um, your nervous system craves um, novelty. So, in fact, we're, we're, uh, humans are this bundle of contradiction because on one hand, we want stability. On the other hand, we want novelty, mm-hmm. right? And we're stuck in between some of those. Uh, life, wise life, a wisdom life is about learning to balance those two. You, know, you don't want a new job every other week, right? right? But if okay. you do the exact same thing every time, yeah, yeah it's going to suck. Right, so you need to have the balance between stability and novelty. Yeah. No, no, I was just I make sure it was my my wife. I actually want to see it switch gears. What you were talking about, everything that you just said about the five things, uh, your well, and being present, translates into martial arts, especially the presence. And I, I don't know, maybe that's why we love martial arts so much. Is when you're about to get choked or punched in the face, you're in the moment, and I think that's. A lot of people are not in the moment, but when they go to class, they always say, oh, man, I feel so good. Maybe because you were finally present in the moment. And then I really like the fact that you're talking about the well. Mm -hmm. Sometimes as as your partner, you do need to take a break or whatever, go refill your well, Mm -hmm. and then come back. So you can be the best partner because the most important person is your partner. It's not you. It's your partner. And if you go around and you have partners that are all hurt or empty wells, then it's not fun for anybody. So, yeah, everything you just said would would apply to martial arts, and I see why people love it. And it's like that that break they get from the modern lifestyle. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, and that is something about the intensity of martial arts. Um, 
you know, if you lose your focus, there's tangible consequences, right? You know, your nose is going to go across your face. You're going to get choked out. You're going to get hurt. So it forces you to be in present time. And for some people, that's the most relief they get. Mm-hmm. You know, the Chinese have a saying um, that we all have drunken monkeys in our head, you know, and they just chatter, 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 chatter. And most of us do. You know, we ruminate or we overthink you know, this thing over and over and over and over again. And we worry about the future and we regret the past Mm -hmm. and it just drives us crazy. It literally drives us crazy. Um, But you go into martial arts school and at least for a moment there, you know, you are focused on something that tasks you Now you can't stop your mind, but you can focus it. Mm -hmm. And if the stakes are high enough, at least you believe the stakes are high enough that you don't stay present. You're going to get hurt. Oh, guess what? It's like a form of moving meditation. That really is the same thing as meditation, right? Your chi sao, your sticky hands, mm-hmm. right? Your sparring, that's moving meditation. Because in order to do that well, you must be in the moment, completely in the moment, and nowhere else. You've got to be like a mirror, mm-hmm. reflecting perfectly what is in front of you, nothing else. And that's why a lot of times people feel better afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like they, they give their brains a break. One thing I've, I've found, because um, I've never really experienced burnout at work, because luckily I, I, I'm in a good position in a, in a clinic that I feel like makes or allows me to be creative or, or kind of work that side. Yeah. <clears throat> but a lot of PT clinics, um, especially with the insurance system and the way they pay now, it becomes, I don't want to use the word like a mill, but you right. can get in the habit of just trying to crank patients through for volume just to... to to make money so you can pay your employees a little bit. So I haven't experienced that, but I am acutely aware that my family has a, a anxiety issues, not major ones, but definitely my dad talks about it cause he growing up, that's why he would meditate and do things. So he'd always prep me, you know, we have a family history of this anxiety issues and you need to be aware of that. So you don't go the route that some of our family members did by using substances to control that or just, you know, bad habits, whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I find when I do feel, I, I have to, I do want to take pride in the fact I don't ever take stuff home from work. I'm very cognizant of work is work, uh, and any thing to happen on a bad day, I try to shed that and come home and not bring that onto my friends and family who I run into. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've found that I constantly, and, I, and I, you talked about novelty. I like coming home and trying new things because it also allows me to use my brain. And then kind of forget the other stuff because I have to use my brain to do this other thing. Yep. Um, and then you're talking about the um, the I never heard that explanation about the monkey chatter in the brain. Drunken monkey. The drunken monkey. I was All talking to someone about that um, and talking about flotation therapy mm-hmm. using isolation tanks. And that I've never been diagnosed with anxiety, and I don't feel like I have a, a sort of massive anxiety issue. But when I go float, especially three to four times in a row, that monkey chatter in my brain goes away for six to 12 weeks or at least it's, I shouldn't say go away the volume is turned down to like a level one as opposed to being level five or six digital piece yeah yeah and uh, and so that one modality has been very helpful on top of the martial arts and meditation that I do um, and allow me to you know avoid burnout or avoid just the monotony of stuff mm-hmm. and then watching my son now I've noticed and I always talk about novelty with, with my patients and people I know because it is you know mm-hmm. it, it is very true of humans we, we seek yeah. novelty yeah. and I was into an uh, NPR podcast it was back when I was in college so it was 10 years ago or so 
but they were talking about why your life speeds up as you age is mm-hmm. because your brain is not getting novel input. And so you kind of have this, I'm horribly describing this, so you can probably just do a better job describing the actual scientific <laughs> mechanism for this. But when you're a baby, nice. everything is new mm-hmm. and your brain hasn't, doesn't have the connections. So the time feels slower because your brain is working and you're developing these connections and everything is new and, and mm-hmm. it's, you don't go into the autopilot. It's that mechanism of going home from work mm-hmm. and you don't realize that you've driven home from work. Mm-hmm. And so when, as you age, you don't, especially if you're not doing new things, it flies by because there's no novel input. Your brain's not being forced to work. And so the, mm-hmm. what you perceive as is time flying by when time is, it's, I guess it's relative. It, mm-hmm. it's, it's the same thing, but it's the way you perceive it right. speeds up or slows down based on, on novelty. And I've noticed my son with toys, mm-hmm. he'll have one toy and he'll be obsessed for an hour with his toy. And then he just completely loses interest and we, that toy no longer holds sway for him mm-hmm. until you get him. And it's, it's simple things. Like last mm-hmm. night we showed him a new toothbrush for him. And all of a sudden <laughs> he was fixated for like an hour and a half on this mm-hmm. one thing. Um, and so that, I do encourage patients and the people I run into, especially if they feel like they're stuck, if they can't motivate themselves to work out, to get off the couch and get healthy, if they feel like they can't because for chronic pain reasons, yeah. A, start small yeah. and don't and do, do the anything. same th- and don't do the same thing over and over again. Yeah. Change your workout a lot. And the yeah. people I follow online for workout ideas reinforce that. Yeah. You know, if you're just constantly doing bicep curls or doing kettlebell swings or doing the same workout for the next 30 years mm-hmm. you yeah, may have the willpower the, to sustain that that's the same concept for the body right you can't do the same exercise over and over right. yeah, you'll, you'll get to an adaptation you have to change it plateau. up right yeah, yeah. The, the, here's an idea just just off the top of my head for um you know maybe treating people with depression um you know kind of moderately severe depression who need to get physically active wouldn't it be cool if we put together a program like a 12-week program work it out five days a week but do different classes every day. So one day is a salsa class, one day is Western fencing, you know, another day is jujitsu, yeah. you know, another day is basketball. Now, none of that is going to teach you how to be really good at any one of those sports, but what it would do would like shock you out of, you know, a rut because suddenly you've got all this new stimulus coming at you and you may find something after 12 weeks go, oh, okay, well, I really like that yoga class. Maybe I want to go back and do vinyasa, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a, a brilliant idea. I, I think that would work. And I know there are some chronic pain studies that I've, um, uh, from people I know at work, who are, it's not that specific idea, but yeah. the chronic pain research now is kind of along those lines of it's not just a physical thing, mm-hmm. it's not just a, the mental side of things, it's combining the two together right. and trying to get that person out of the rut a little bit by combining the mental and the physical side of things together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I found uh, sometimes group works as well getting people in a group and not just by themselves their yeah. extra motivation um, so they're accountable accountability right. is a big thing too and, absolutely and so especially with weight loss so recently I luckily have a wife who's who's uh, she's very fit very fit but she's also very type A I don't know if that's mm-hmm. a, a correct way to say it but she's on top of everything and she's mm-hmm. organized and she's motivated um, and she you married up yeah, married up. She keeps me. A- <laughs> Sorry, Dylan. No, that's all right. I fully admit that. She the, keeps the, me- what is it? The group of five. You married five. up for a reason. She keeps me accountable, and if she can start working out and run a mile 
uh, I'll, I'll make sure two weeks after giving birth. It's like, I really don't have any excuses. Yeah. You know? And I, it's probably more of a jog. It was a safe, mm-hmm. safe way to jog. A, a, you right. know, I think she may have started half a mile, but she's motivates me because I can't get away with what I used to be able to do, which is like, mm-hmm. oh, I'll work out tomorrow or I'll do this tomorrow. Yep. And now it's been the diet. Like, you know, for probably the last two years, like I had this, I got to a really good stage with my diet mm-hmm. where I was maintaining, I just didn't say it's a really good stage. I was maintaining a weight mm-hmm. that I was comfortable with, mm-hmm. but maybe not ideally with, especially mm-hmm. for, for health, overall health, but also just for martial arts training and just being physically fit. Mm-hmm. I wasn't eating for nutritionally for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we've both together, cause you know, she, for us, it's both sugar and she's a huge chocolate and cookie cookie holic. Um, it's tough to kick sugar, and it's she is able to self motivate to. I'm stopping. Mm-hmm. I am not able to self motivate. I will. Mm-hmm. I my grandmother and I have an addiction to uh, Reese's peanut butter cups. I, mm-hmm. It's my grand. When I go see my grandmother, she'll ask me, "Do you have any Reese's with?" It? And it's it's it's, <laughs> bad, it's a bad addiction. <laughs> with it. It's a bad addiction. Yeah. Um, but once she started motivating herself, she just stopped buying sweets, and, and mm-hmm. I was like, "Well." I don't have an excuse anymore because she, she's doing it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's not, she's no more special than I am. She's dealing with the same things I'm doing. But she has a characteristic of she can keep a goal in her right. sight right. and break a habit like and that. She, and she holds me accountable. Yep. And that great relationship. has been helpful. And so sometimes you'll, you'll be able to hold yourself accountable. Some people are able to do that. On, on that Some of us can't. So you yeah. need to find a group of people mm-hmm. or a person mm-hmm. To have accountability. Or you can't in one area. Right. It's harder for you in one area. Right. So the reciprocity is that you balance out. I'm sure that you do things for Fiorella that um, support her. She would say probably reading. She was never a huge reader. Mm -hmm. Um, And I find reading enjoyable. Yeah. Um, It's not that she can't read, obviously, but she just wasn't a, she wouldn't necessarily read for pleasure. And Mm -hmm. then this year we did a a goal. That also helped too, is we wrote down our goals. We had a a goal book. And one of hers was to read a book a month, and mm-hmm. that was nice. She, she had never done it before. How? Um, how uh, what, what percentage of the uh, population would you say that some people can stop like that a habit? Because aren't we uh, creatures of habit, or is that just pure well, cliche? It, it, it depends. It really depends. That's a complex question, but it's a very good question, JC. So, um, you know, we, we have the ability to form habits um, and kind of go on autopilot and do them. I think the most effective people are the people who can quickly form habits and quickly break habits based on what their goal is, right? What they are consciously aware of what they want to achieve, right? You follow me here? Yeah, but um, even though they're aware of it, how, how well or how strong are they actually to to stay into breaking that habit just because I have a goal mm-hmm. doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to break my habit changing weight or yeah. stopping like he said his Reese's peanut butter cups so one of the things that I always try and work with with a person in when they're trying to change your behavior is understanding what is the function of that behavior what is the function of that behavior all right now in the case of the Reese's peanut butter cups or let's tie that even to smoking, you've got an external substance, sugar or nicotine, that gives you a high. You get addicted to that. So when you're taking that in, it changes your state, right? It changes your state. But you have a bunch of different habits, and some of them are healthy, brushing your teeth, right? Mm -hmm. That's probably a habit you get up, you don't even think about it, right? You don't want to break that habit because it's a healthy habit for you. You could. You could stop brushing your teeth tomorrow. But... It's just kind of natural. 
if you have a habit that was good for you at one point, but now you need to change it, you know how do you uh, how do you overwrite that? Well, you got to understand what the behavior does for you, right? Are you following me? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, and I think that that's with addiction in particular. That's one of the reasons why um, addiction treatment is so poor. Very poor outcomes in addiction treatment. Uh, one of the very first things you need to ask is what is what is your drinking doing for you? What is your cigarette smoking doing for you? You know, I find that people that um, smoke, of course, nicotine is incredibly addictive, so it's a hard habit to break. Well, I actually, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but would you say it's mind over matter, or is it the chemical connection to they have to the nicotine that, it's, it's that's both. stronger? It's both. Yeah, you don't, you can't separate those, right? Okay. So um, it's, it's very, very tempting to, like, pluck our brain out, you know, and go you know, this one and then put our body over here, but we're, we're together. But what I would say is with smoking, a lot of people go, okay, so stop smoking. Stop, stop, don't, don't do it. People know it's bad stop, for you. Don't, yeah. Right. But what am I telling you to do? You hear right. smoke. Yeah. You're, I'm not giving you something to replace what that smoking does for you. And for a lot of people, what it is, is it's social. You go out, back, you know, back of the restaurant or whatever, you know, if you're a cook and you chat with people for five minutes and you do this, you, you inhale real deeply. Okay. Forget about all the carbon monoxide, nicotine and tar that you're taking in your lungs, but you inhale real deeply, right? And you communicate with people. Now, if you don't replace that, you know, that behavioral need for somebody and you just tell them to stop smoking, well, they can chew gum all they want, but they're going to go back out there and they're going to do that again. Right, so you need to understand what is it that that does for them, okay? mm. and that's that can it's a lot more complex than the example that I just gave. But in every case, when you've got a negative habit um, it, that's intractable, meaning it's hard to break, it's doing something for you, and changing is going to require effort and pain, and that's going to be more. Right, effort and pain, then you're willing to um, to put forth to get the reward. Now, where that comes in has a lot to do with time perspective. Okay, so when you can quit tomorrow, and quit tomorrow, and quit tomorrow, hmm. there's no urgency. There's no urgency to it. Right now, you could quit smoking like that if there was enough urgency and enough pressure. Right. If you were going to, suddenly you were moving to, oh, I don't know, where's a country that doesn't smoke? Saudi Arabia? Uh, okay, well, let's go, let's, go, yeah. uh, let's go with alcohol. So let's say you have a real um, a drinking habit as you come home and you drink a six-pack, right, a night. And somebody says, you know, you really shouldn't do that. Yeah, 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 I know. Next night, you know, I'm drinking another six-pack. Why? Because it doesn't really matter, Right. But then suddenly you move to Saudi Arabia and you find out that if you're caught with possession of alcohol, they're going to execute you, right? That's salient. That means it's like right in your face. Suddenly, then, that's harsh, but the deterrent is, if I drink, I'm going to die, right? Okay, now true addiction is when, even with that kind of um, a carrot and stick, even with that kind of pressure on you, you would still try and drink. Okay? But my point is getting at how salient is the reward to not drinking or to, to change the habit? Um, how close is it to you? 
right? And how big is the, the reward to pain? So you're, hard, you're hardwired to avoid pain and seek pleasure. That's biological, right? That is like fundamental behavioralism right there. Except if you're a martial artist. No, it's fine. But okay, here's, <laughs> here's, a great here's a great example. So why would we put ourselves through pain if we're, if we're hardwi- hardwired to avoid pain and seek pleasure? Why would you put yourself through pain, JC? Uh, I don't want to sound evil, but I kind of enjoy the uh, the pain and the endurance and the outcome that I feel great at the end of the workout. Okay. So you're anticipating feeling better. You're anticipating uh, There's more. that pleasure at the end. Right. Okay. And if you're crazy enough like us to do it for year after year after year, then you end up thinking that there's multiple rewards to putting ourselves to the pain. Okay. Right. And that's it. And that's it. The people who are successful in creating positive habits are the ones that keep those rewards in their sight, in their vision, very close. They also keep the understanding of the pain of not changing, Hmm. right? So if you are um, uh, addicted to cigarettes, right, the pain of not changing is you're going to die of lung cancer. If you are really, really um, connected with that, you understand that truly, then you know, you'll quit. Right. Right. But it's a pay, it's a, it's like a, a pain pleasure paradigm. Now the good thing is because we're conscious beings, because we're intelligent beings, we can choose and we can kind of manipulate that a little bit simply by saying, okay, I'm looking at my life here and this habit isn't working for me. I want to change it. Right. Well, the first thing is what am I going to replace it with? Right. The problem with a diet you know, it starts out with don't eat this, don't eat that, don't eat this. Nobody ever tells you what to eat, mm-hmm. right? That should be the first focus. What am I going to eat? And then you start making a list. If I don't change my diet, what's going to happen? If I do change my diet, what's going to happen? What's the pain of not changing versus the pleasure, the long-term pleasure? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, take it back a little bit broader here. People who are very successful have a good time perspective, that is, that they can defer gratification for an ultimate reward. People who get through college, because college sucks for a lot of people, they're people who say, you know what, I'm going to suck it up. I'm going to suck it up for four years, for five years, and do this, because at the end, I'm going to have more opportunities. Right? And so that's where humans, thinking, thinking creatures, um, we both... We excel. Sometimes we get ourselves in trouble, but we we generally excel by making those kind of plans and planning for the future. But people who can't do that, who don't see that time perspective, who are only um, basically living off of, well, that class is hard. It makes me uncomfortable, frustrated. I'm walking out. Well, what's their quality of life? You see? Yeah. And is that something that we're taught or, or, or some people just don't grasp that concept of not putting the time and effort in now yeah. to to get that pleasure later? It's just like people are just wandering around and then complaining about life. Yeah. And like, oh, it's, this happened, this happened. Mm-hmm. But they don't really change anything, their habits to get that pleasure because they're just wandering and not they don't have that time perspective. Right. Well, deferred gratification is cultivated. Cultivated. And that's where I think martial arts can really excel, mm. particularly for little kids, right? You, know, you bring your kid in who's five, and by the time they're, you know, 10 or so, and they've achieved a really big goal. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Right. The point isn't you know whether or not they're going to be Bruce Lee. The point is that when they're in college, many years later, and it sucks, they go, "Well, you know what? I achieved this really big thing before. I can knuckle down and do it now." If you've never had that experience, you pretty much stay inside your it's comfort a bit zone. Of practice of cultivation. Right. One thing sucked. I got through it. I got yeah. better. Another thing sucked. I got through it. I got better. Yeah. Okay. It is kind of innate for us to, to seek pleasure. There's a, a psych experiment with the marshmallows and little kids. Yep. Have you seen that one? Yeah. It's a deferred gratification. I did it with my kids. Yeah. So uh, they set up a hidden I camera. Yes, 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 yes. It yes, said, yes. okay, you know, if you don't touch these marshmallows before I come back, you could have so Two. many marshmallows, right? And it's a bigger reward. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the kids actually, you know, they take the, you know, they take the marshmallow and eat the marshmallow first and then don't get the additional marshmallows. Very few kids will put it, put it off and get the extra marshmallows. Um, that's tends to be how we are, right? You know, if you can get a little bit extra, a little bit extra pleasure, you know, that's what we go for. Well, uh, you might be reading this. I know about climate change. Not that we need to get into the topic, but I think that's one of the reasons we have a problem with climate change is because you're talking about people don't have that time perspective. It's not a necessity to change climate right now because I'm in my car, I'm driving, I need to do my things. I'll pass it on to the next generation. It doesn't affect me right now. So, you know, if I, if I said, okay, you know, JC, climate change is real, you got to give up your car. Right, I do believe in climate change. Don't get me wrong, but I'm like, but can I give him my car? This is a this is actually one of the fields in in psychology that we're working on is how do you influence people's behavior on this large scale so that we don't go off the cliff? Which right. we are now going off the cliff. Could y'all could y'all take cliff notes from marketing because like selling like literally pitching it to the world? Coca Cola, help us save. Uh, well, why we're in this predicament, actually, is, is because of psychologists in the first place. And uh, uh, there's a great, great documentary called Century of Self. Uh, Century of Self was a BBC documentary. It's four parts, like four hours, but it's fantastic. And one of the things that they, they trace and they posit is how we became a real consumer culture. I'm not talking about capitalism. I'm talking about consumerism. And it goes back to post-World War II. When the Cold War, when the U.S. was basically locked in, you know, adversarial relationship with the Soviet Union, right? They wanted to prove to Khrushchev that capitalism was going to work. Well, how's it going to work? Well, everybody's going to buy stuff, right? How do they get that to happen? They hired a guy named Edward Bernays. Edward Bernays was the nephew of Freud, Sigmund Freud, right? He took all of his uncle's ideas and he applied them to marketing, so he was the first guy that started product placement, like ads in movies to make cigarettes look cool. So if you want to know why there's a whole generation of people addicted to cigarettes, it's Edward Bernays. Yeah. You know, he had Humphrey Bogart out there smoking and, and this and that. It was all very carefully crafted. Just right? like it is today. Cool. They also went towards this idea of suburbia, which was before that time... You know, the white picket fence and you own your own home wasn't as common. But they wanted everybody to buy their own washing machine, not share it. Buy their own barbecue, not share it. Have their own white picket fence, right? So that was the concept that was actually intentionally put out by Bernays and some think tanks. So the idea was you got to keep up with the Joneses. Mm-hmm. Oh, so-and-so's got a Maytag. Now you got to buy a Maytag. 
right? You're not hand washing it and hanging on the line. Oh, now you got to have a dryer, right? And so it it became this increasing ramp of consumerism. And now we're drowning in our own garbage. Yeah, we are literally drowning in our own garbage. That's why you have to buy the uh, the diamond rock that really is useless for anything, but it looks great. And yeah. she needs to have a big one for five thousand yeah. dollars. All that is all that is socially constructed. Yeah. All that is socially constructed. You need you need clean air, clean food, clean water. You need a roof over your head. Past those basic fundamental needs, they start to become psychological and spiritual needs. Right? You need connection. You need to feel contribution to your community. You need to feel loved. You need to love. These are the things that we really need. Past survival, right? Past survival. One of the great qualities of, of Homo sapiens, I mean, throughout our evolution, has been cooperation, mm. right? We are taught against that nature, right? We are taught to be competitive. Mm-hmm. Look at all the games and sports that you grew up playing. They're taught to you to be competitive as a winner. Most of your language is framed around war and winning, right? And this is partially because we want to create a consumer society. We don't want to cooperate, right? We don't want to own a a communal barbecue pit or a communal dining area, Mm -hmm. you know? Is there any... um Studies and I, I'm probably throwing out something strange. Are there any studies done where they've shown when you buy the diamond or the car or whatever, the chemical change that you get for happiness for whatever time period compared to the actual spiritual or the human connection? Mm-hmm. Is there one? Has there been any studies that one is stronger and lasts longer compared to the other? Well, it it, it does have to do with. Um with kind of the return for the the initial experience, all right? So when you buy something that society says was cool and you feel you get this rush, well, this rush is, is dopamine, right? It's the feel-good. It's the reward centers in your head. Um, and if you misunderstand, you misuse that, you can get in this cycle of always trying to trigger you know, trigger that dopamine. So some people get addicted to shopping. Addicted. I, I did have a friend that he would purchase the, the, the car of the year, mm-hmm. come show off his motorcycle. He would just come to class, yeah. to martial arts class, just to show off his new motorcycle. Right, so he shows it off, and woo, he gets wows, exactly. and then what happens next week? He has to go buy something else to get a new wow. That's right. Because we honestly didn't care. We're like, hey, yeah. that's awesome, but it doesn't, doesn't affect me. Right, because he's, he's misunderstanding here. Because of the way that he was taught, the way that his worldview is, he's trying to, um, uh, to supplant love and connection and significance with consumerism right that's what you are taught from a very young age which is what we're being conditioned right yeah. at the movies or the tv everything you got to see through magazine right you got marketing. a fancy car man you're significant you roll up in that lamborghini man you are the bomb dude everybody's gonna go wow and i'm gonna feel great you know i'm gonna be respected yeah. not really not really. You really want to be respected. You really want to connect. You really want to be significant. And nobody teaches you that if you want those, what you do is you go into your community and you bring other people up. Talking about that walking tall, yeah. what you said earlier about the Eastern philosophy. Well, and that's also a, like a lasting respect. It's a bit like when you show off like a shiny object, people might go, oh, well, that's cool. Mm-hmm. I, I wish I could afford that. Or, oh, wow, that, you know, he's worked hard now he can he can afford that but mm-hmm. that 
specific item is a fleeting respect. It's yes. the respect you gain from from, from hollow from having knowledge in a, in a specific skill mm-hmm. that you can teach other people. Being able to help other people, being a good example to other people, that is a lasting respect that um, I, I don't think as, as kids are taught that because it's a consumerism, a consumer society, right. we're taught to get that next shiny thing versus... We want, we want the toy, the cereal box. Right. And right. as I become an adult, I've realized that I, I am most satisfied by being respected for things I've done as mm-hmm. like on a larger scale, mm-hmm. whether it's respect to my family for going through graduate school mm-hmm. or whether it's respect from patients for being able to help them get past whatever issue they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, See, and that, that, that that's kind of respect really right there. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there's a difference between you achieving graduate school and what you do for that individual patient. Right. And that's where you become really significant and the respect that you earned is profound yeah. and lasting, right? And that is something that we um, we turn a blind eye to. Because when you start to focus more on people and community and trust and caring and sharing, you don't do as much consuming. And you find that you don't need a whole bunch of stuff to make you happy. Right. And that's at odds with the way we have our economy structured. Right. So would you say that, that Dylan would get his uh, dopamine drip every time he gets that memory of, like, I helped clients so-and-so and he's walking better? Mm-hmm. So every time he thinks about that, would he get, like, a, a, a hit of, like, makes me feel better, makes me feel happy compared to my car sitting outside? Yeah. It's just a car. Possibly, does does possibly. that happen during a memory or not? Yeah. No, it, it, it does. It does. I would say that it might be a little bit different. Um, we're, we are hardwired for pleasure. All right. In our neurology, we have this, this limbic system, right? this reward system, and it's primarily these nerves that create dopamine. It's one of your primary ones, dopamine and adrenaline. Now, it's good that we have that so the species survived. And the most obvious um, you know, slave to that is, is sex, mm-hmm. right? Orgasm is very, very pleasurable. That's really what the limbic system is about, which is a good thing because if it wasn't pleasurable, species would have died off, right? Mm-hmm. What's the next thing in line? Well, food, right? Because we need to seek food. If if we couldn't go to the grocery store here, we would have to spend a lot of energy hunting and gathering and growing our own food. Well, it's a good thing that that's slave to pleasure, right? Well, go on a little bit further because we're thinking, thinking people, right? And we've learned ways to hijack that with drugs or experiences. And we get... You know, we get in this habit. We want to feel that sharp pleasure all the time. Now, I think when you're reminiscing and feeling profoundly happy, maybe that's not a limbic system function. Maybe that's more of a whole brain kind of connection. Um, But we really can mess ourselves up by um, focusing too much on that reward center. You know, I I, I sent you a text a while back asking about your thoughts on uh, stoicism. As a philosophy, and I've been, JC and I both have actually been writing the Stoic Diary. And regardless of the actual, what your thoughts on, on on the philosophy itself, I will say I I have found not just from that specific journal itself, but journaling as a whole, writing down my thoughts and reflection on the day. Even if it's, I, I had a hard time starting to start journaling because I was trying to write like a novel every time I journaled <laughs> and that at least the stoic stoics journal the the daily uh, stoic journal 
is only a pair, not even a pair, it's like six lines. And they have questions for each day, uh, evening and night. And not necessarily the philosophy itself, because I haven't dove deep enough into reading about Stoicism, but just the simple act of writing and answering questions about my day and reflecting on things I've done has helped, um, I guess, kind of control that need for... I don't say dopamine rush is the wrong word. Instant but, gratification. Yes, yeah, yeah, and, and and also putting in perspective like what actually did I do that day, mm-hmm. and and it, it's it's the questions are sometimes very broad and, and a little ambiguous at times. Give and me I, an I example. Just, oh gosh, for for me, it's helped me to uh, how to react to things. Mm-hmm. If there's a situation where something didn't make me upset, perfect example today, I got cut off pretty bad, and. What I do sometimes, if I have time with the journal, I will actually put a picture from Google. Mm. So one of the entries had to do with anger. So I actually took a picture of a uh, a big red gorilla, like fangs and all, showing his teeth. And I posted it on the journal, and I wrote about the journal. I wrote about anger. And actually, when I got when I was about to get mad and probably yell at this lady through the window, of course, obviously, or give her a nice good hand gesture, that picture actually popped into my head, the, the, the red, angry showing fangs gorilla and i was like is it worth it do i really need to do this Mm -hmm. so uh, that actually gave me a good pause and i was like like i literally did throw out my hands but instead of doing the one finger salute i just said sure whatever lady just it doesn't matter i she didn't hit me i didn't hit her just and then another thing it has shown me is that i don't know what she's going through she was in in a rush you don't know her story. Yeah, I don't exactly. That's I, that's that's actually one of the biggest things I learned through stoicism is I don't know other people's story. So when they're in a rush or they're pissed off or, or whatever it may be, I can either react in a negative way and be that big red gorilla showing my fangs. What if she was rushing to the hospital mm-hmm. for a loved one? Exactly, Would that changed the way you felt about. Yeah, I, I, I get goosebumps just thinking about it now. Yeah. Like seriously. Yeah. So now I will say I don't like to tie myself to one especially if I haven't read deep enough into it because I don't know the pitfalls of, of different ways of thinking. And mm-hmm. that's one thing I wish I'd taken in college was more, I only took one philosophy course and it was a medical ethics philosophy course. And I kind of looking back, I wish um, medical schools and like pre-med schools, that's the track I was on, would require more philosophy courses. If nothing else, just to know your mind because it's, you can't really help other patients. If I you're agree. Not, you're breath, yourself. Yeah. Breath of knowledge. But yeah. a specific example we're talking about, I had the exact same experience today but it's the third time I've seen this car. <laughs> They're following my, you now. It's on my way home from work, and it's. I'm pretty sure he works in the same location, I, or he or she works in the same location I do. And he is a. They are a very, very aggressive driver in mm-hmm. rush hour traffic. And I had that initial thought of, okay, this is like the third time you've driven the exact same way. I know you are not rushing to the hospital because you're driving away from the medical center, but. Is it worth like my time to even get mm-hmm. ramped up, or can I just relax and enjoy my ride home? Well, so I, I, I don't want to take the time to, you know, you, you'll figure out how to handle that problem, okay? Right. But, but let me um, take a little larger picture, because this is actually what I teach explicitly with my martial arts program. So emotional control is one of the elements from psychology that I've embedded into the curriculum, because it helps people master their lives. Right. What you're talking about, that anger, that flash of anger, right? That's an emotional state. And there's a lot that's going on with you to create that emotional state. It's reflected in your body. It's reflected in your words that come out of your mouth. 
it's reflected in your beliefs, what you think about that situation, and what you think it means about yourself and about that other person. Right? And it also is ingrained by the automatic thoughts that pop up. You know, like one of my automatic thoughts that, that pops up is, San Antonio drivers suck. Yep. Right? Well, that's not a helpful thought. Okay. All of these things go into create an emotional state, whether that's anger, whether that's anxiety, whether it's depression, whether it's an effective state, a positive emotional state. So we need to learn to be in control of our emotional states, not just be blown around by them. And when I say be in control of your emotional states, I'm not talking about biting back on your anger. Because this is not healthy. When I clench my jaw, I'm like, oh, I'm going to save your life today. I'm going to walk away. Right? Being in charge of your emotional state is actually understanding yourself so well that you can observe your emotional state and you choose how you want to handle any given situation. Viktor Frankl is one of my favorite psychiatrists. He survived four Nazi death camps, including Auschwitz and Dachau. And he was a Jewish uh, psychiatrist and interned in World War II. He survived them all, and he observed a lot of different people. And he, he created a system um, called logotherapy after he was liberated from those camps. What was it called again? I'm sorry? It, logos with their adversity, and he could pretty much tell who was going to survive the camp and who wouldn't, who would be resilient enough. And when he came out of that, he said, one of your last great, great human freedoms is your ability to choose how you think and feel about any given circumstance. I heard about That's probably the only cliche I heard. Yeah. You can't choose quote. your circumstance always. You know, you may not be able to control that other person's driving, you know, and they smash into you and so forth. But you can choose how you react and act with that. Not even react. React is the wrong word. Act. How do you act? All right? So the first thing is knowing yourself. Right? Those questions you're talking about in stoicism, Think about this in a larger sense. What does it do when somebody asks you a question like that? It creates you to think. Okay. If I say, so write in your journal today, Dylan, what did you contribute today? What kind of question is that? Reflective. Well, it's also an open-ended question because you can't just say yes or no. You have to, mm-hmm. you have to really consider You have to consider day. it. But yeah. what are you considering? Are you considering why San Antonio drivers suck so bad? You're considering everybody involved? Well, no, I think you're considering your your reaction and your response to the world. And what did you contribute today? Yeah, and if it's if, if I'm considering all I contribute was me being angry at this one driver and complaining about other drivers. Why did Tim Duncan have to retire? <laughs> what, do you, what are you considering? I'm going to ask you the question. What do you contribute today? What good did I do today? Yeah. Okay. Questions change your focus and your focus determines your reality you have more information coming at you right now than you could ever process we're limited human beings right so you're just have this fire hose of information coming at you so how does your brain deal with it well it filters it out it filters out only the important things right well what's important what's important is what you choose to focus on Right, and because of that, right, we allow certain information in, and that can really color our world. Right, mm. our San Antonio drivers—do they really suck? 
I would have to say yes because I got to <laughs> I got to drive in Germany on the autobahn for yeah. four years. So maybe com- I'm comparing. Sorry, comparing. a little biased, but no, I'm just saying. Yeah, I understand. I understand what yeah, you mean. I don't. I don't know if they really suck, right. but because I hold that belief, every right. time somebody cuts me off, that belief has that much more weight right. than all the other drivers. Right. They were driving perfectly around me. That's but a, I noticed that one thing. That's exactly. That was actually the the very thought I had. Yeah. I thought I was like horrible driver, but then I was like, you know what? I've been driving all day, and that was the only horrible driver. So should I look at the one horrible driver, or should I look mm-hmm. at the other thousands of people I drove around right. that did not bug me? Are you going to let that one second interaction? destroy the other 23 hours, 59 minutes of your day. Exactly. Right. You know, and, and that has a lot to do with, with, with our dynamic, you know, as human beings, we get stuck on stuff, you know, and, and man, I mean, you know, so much more than physical violence, you know, when we get into verbal conflicts, because we will replay that over and over and over again. If I punch you in the face, you're going to heal. You'll have a black eye, you go home, eh, whatever. Right. You know, Dylan, trust me, he loves me, right? He'll shake it off. But if I hurt Dylan's feelings in the next 10 years, he's reliving that. That's poison circulating in his head. Okay? So he ingrains those thoughts, and he becomes very good at going to that emotional state. Probably anger anger at me or whatever. Mm. Right? So we need to choose. We need to choose how we're going to handle these emotional states. So let me go back again and, and just remind you because they're, they're very, very important things. Our, how we use our body, our physiology, how we use our language to describe situations, our beliefs, all right, our beliefs and our focus, and our automatic thoughts that bubble up. These are the things that all support an emotional state. Now, you can change your emotional state by influencing any one of those. So one of the easiest examples to take um, and that I use in the martial arts, all right? So if you are having a bad day and let's say you're down, all right, show me how, um, how your body looks when you're feeling depressed and down. Just show me right now and pretend. So what, describe what you're doing with your body, JC. Into the mic. I'm just letting it sag. Uh-huh. Just shoulders are slumped over, heads down. Mm-hmm. Typically, I actually don't even want to make eye contact. Yeah, your eyes are down. What about your breathing? Very, very shallow. Very shallow. Yeah. Yeah, your voice is kind of down too. Yeah. Right? So all of your emotions are expressed in motion. They're expressed by your body. All right? Now, pull your shoulders back. Okay, go ahead and stay depressed, but pull your shoulders back. Now, lift your head up. Lift your head up, but stay depressed. Okay, now put a big, goofy grin on your face. Big, goofy grin, right? <laughs> Just like that. Okay. Are you, are you still depressed? No. Still depressed it's very weird. You can't do it. Yeah. You can't do it because it's incongruent. You have cognitive dissonance, right? So you're saying, I'm depressed, but your body isn't moving in a depressed way. So that's an example. Now, how do you snap a state? Well, when you come into class, all down and bummed, right? What's the very first thing? All right, line up. Boom. Right. Right. Here comes the energy. Pull your shoulders back. I don't care. I don't care. Leave that out there. Pull your shoulders back. Eyes up. Look at me. Right? And let's go. We start moving. We start breathing deeper. How do you feel at the end of class? I feel amazing. Yeah, yeah. you forget about that yeah. state entirely. 
You forget about that state entirely. We get into big problems when we wallow in that state, when we ruminate in a negative state, and we, we don't have the ability to knock ourselves out of it. So can you fake it till you make it? Yep. Really? Yes. But don't let me, um, I don't want to downplay the significance of serious mental Correct. illness or serious life situations. Yeah. But quite often we fake it till we make it. So if it's just a mood thing, you know, I'm having a crappy day and I need to get cheered up. Hey, that's a great way to snap your state. Go for a run. And what's physio- physiology, mm-hmm. what type of physiology is literally happening on that fake it till you make it uh, minute or so? Well, you know, the, the really cool thing, um, when you break it down on a, um, a neurological level, your body doesn't know the difference when you're faking it. So one of the depression treatments, you know, is to have a person hold a pin in their mouth. You know, and when you put a pin in your mouth, what do you do? The corners of your lips go up. And you know what? Physiologically, you start pumping out serotonin in your brain. Hmm. Now, you may not feel like that, yeah. but it actually works. So you put a smile on and your body's going to start making all the feel-good hormones as if you were happy. So sometimes fake it till you make it really can't work. You know, barring real significant problems course, have to be addressed. But even then, it becomes like it becomes part of the solution for many mm. people. You know, as they learn how to cope for a little while till they can get beyond coping. Now, I have two points. I, one of the issues when I asked you about stoicism was it made a lot of sense to me. Mm. Just answering the, the questions and reading about it, and I think sometimes people can take quotes you read online out of context. Mm-hmm. And one of the things is coming from. My background, which is you know blessed and very privileged, I haven't really had a lot of true hardships and and compared to the vast majority of people in the world, mm-hmm. I felt sometimes reading quotes on stoicism where they kind of give the impression where just make yourself feel better. That's kind of where you can if you read yeah. it quickly or read a, a quote online, yeah. someone who's in dire poverty is like, well, that's it's great Pollyannish. for you, yeah. right? And so I I kind of I I like what it did for me, mm-hmm. but I I hesitate preaching mm-hmm. to people in a non different state because they're not where I'm at and right. maybe telling them just, you know, fake it till you make it and, and change your way. It's real insulting work. It's real insulting. Mm. But at the same time, it's like, but I shouldn't also ins- insult their intelligence that they have that ability in them, but they just need to be maybe taken under someone's wing and shown mm-hmm. the way and allowed and given space to find that on their own. Right. Which, also, you know, going back to resources for where we allocate our resources in this country and, and worldwide onto mm-hmm. people who are not as privileged mm-hmm. and and things that could be given to them in school systems with martial arts and many different modalities to help them, mm-hmm. quote unquote, pull themselves up by the bootstrap, which, yep. you know, can, you can't pull yourself up by your bootstrap. Right. So somebody has got a boot on your neck. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I have another comment was uh, also, I'm blank. Let me let me go back to that one because it, it is it is very true and and I don't want people to misunderstand. Um, it, you know, some of that success technology and Tony Robbins and rah 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 um, is pretty good on a life coaching level, but doesn't uh, it's weak tea compared to the pathologies that most people experience. Right. Um, it's an important tool, mm-hmm. but it's a technique. Right. Right. So I've got a big old bag of techniques. This just happens to be one. I know from experience and from many years of teaching that these are very, very good in helping people 
um, improve the quality of their life. So as far as you're capable of controlling your emotions and choosing how you want to feel and choosing how you interact, those are good things. But one of my beefs about psychology, you know, psychology is a very Western-centered, white-centered uh, there was a, a book even written once that you know about psychology. Even the mouse was white, right? <laughs> it is really focused on a privileged Western privilege thing, and there's not nearly enough commentary about the politics behind it and uh, the inequalities in society and how that affects us. Now, that's not true of everybody, but it's kind of this ongoing back and forth. What do we do? And as psychologists, what is our boundaries to comment politically? Um, I can tell you this, that there is no better indicator of poor mental health than uh, a large socioeconomic gap, Hmm. right, and lack of mobility. So the greater the gap, the greater the lack of mobility, the more problems you're going to have physically and mentally. That's Hmm. the way it goes. Um, And and many times in, in my practice, I can tell you, you know, that I get caught up short um, you know, just with the reality of what people have to deal with, you know, and you just look at it and go, my God, why are you doing as well as you are? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, how I don't know how you can endure this with that much loss, that much poverty, um, everything stacked against you. I think because it's normal for them at that point. Yeah, because it's normal for them. And in a lot of cases, they're much more resilient than people who are coming from privilege. So you do have to walk this fine line between, you know, me talking about Viktor Frankl saying, you know, choose how you respond to, you know, your circumstances. And this other line which says, and we better change these circumstances because these circumstances are unjust, they're immoral, they do not serve individuals and people. Um, and acknowledging that one of the best ways to do that is with comprehensive care. I mean, comprehensive and integrative care, you know, what what do you mean by comprehensive care? I'm not following. Um, one experience I had was, um, helping open up a behavioral health clinic in, in Corpus Christi that was within a free clinic that provided, uh, primary care, uh, physicians provided, uh, pediatrics, dentistry, uh, Holistic, completely. Right. All of these things integrated um, and free, essentially. Um, but that's that's really the way to address a lot of these problems. Because poverty is always multidimensional. It's always multidimensional. And usually significant problems in mental health or physical health are multidimensional. Have you ever seen a physical trauma that doesn't accompany some psychological distress no no. yeah yeah they they go hand in hand and a lot of times vice versa as well if you are chronically mentally ill it will affect your body you know right people can literally die of a broken heart (laughs) so uh these are things that need to need to go hand in hand but yeah i i'm with you i'm um i'm very critical on the way we gamed society right um that tends to crush the least of us and not uplift everybody right one of the second i got my thought back was i had a conversation with a um, physician a couple years ago and uh we were talking about the foundation training program that i teach which is a posterior chain integration uh, strengthening program um and a lot of it's based on posture and and i I tend to focus a lot on posture as a clinician and we got in a conversation It, it went way beyond just healthcare and she brought up an author and i'm blanking on the name but their author was talking about 
changing your posture to help improve your outlook on life. And it was just going back to what you just did with JC. And when I teach foundation training, a lot of times, um, just going through the simple act of lifting your chest up, pulling your chin back and holding a powerful posture. Yes. And I, I sometimes describe it and it depends on the person I'm I'm working with, but it's not that I want you to puff your chest out like you're trying to to start a fight. Mm -hmm. I want you to feel powerful and Mm -hmm. confident. Right. And if you're pulling your chest up and out and your chin's tucked, you look and not intimidating is the wrong word. You look powerful, you look mm-hmm. resilient, you look you feel maybe intimidating. Yeah. For 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 people who, who maybe feel like they're weak or not intimidated, you feel more you look more mm-hmm. intimidating. People aren't gonna initially we we had this conversation or a similar topic when at your uh, uh, adrenal response course about mm-hmm. how you project yes. to a room or to a person. Mm-hmm. And if you look Rounded shoulders, you're drooped, and you're kind of mm-hmm. down, downtrodden. You're maybe not attracting is the wrong word, but you're you're there's not a, projecting that image of. There's of a social construction, right, um, that happens, and that's a, a certain reality, right? One of the the classic stats, psych people throw around, you know, is that uh, depressed people, you know, are more accurate on what other people's opinions on them because they think they suck, mm. right? But then they go in these situations and they create these situations where, yeah, people think they suck, right? Because, oh, man, you would my day. Automatically, I'm an energy vampire, okay? So, um, you know, one of, the, one of the problems, I think, with psychology, and this could be a whole other podcast, is there's too much separation um, of these forces. You know, we've, we've got this idea that, that humans need to be scientifically dissectable in our research and these forces are are um, bi-directional they're multi-directional they're multifaceted so your body is one way to approach your moods but you change your moods and you'll change the way you move your body right so a real skilled healer knows which thread to pull on first Mm. right to start to access that Right, and it's not that one thing is the be all, ends all, and so forth. You have to know the person, and you have to kind of coax it out. Where where do we really want to go with this here? Do I want to work with your automatic thoughts first? Do I want to work with your behaviors? Do I want to work with your physiology? Or are you somebody that it's a point of of understanding that you can work with those fundamental beliefs? You know, or your identity schema, what you believe about yourself, who you are, and. Accessing any one of those will change everything else, right? So what's the right balance? And that, that's the, the art of a treatment plan, basically. Right. Or the art of a good martial artist in, in teaching, right? You know, I'm usually challenging you guys on one of those levels, if right. you notice that. Right. Yeah. You know, even the words, right. right? So on a very basic level, this is, of course, um, you know, just this is not uh, the level of uh, uh, intense psychology treatment, Right, but this is general culture. Is if you say you can't on the floor of the martial arts school, what do I do? Mm. I, I just response. I'm blanking in the moment. But what was so, the question? I was thinking if, about if, if somebody, if a student says, you know, oh, I can't. Oh, right. You usually correct them and say, yeah. So we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't use that word. word. We don't yeah. use a four letter C word. Yeah. Yet, right. <laughs> okay. So I reframe it for me. You know, so right, you are in the process of learning. Right. That's very different from I can't. I can't, I can't, I can't. The, the famous jujitsu one, I, I don't lose, I learn. Yeah, exactly, right? So the, that language, now that may seem a little bit cheesy, but it will reinforce um, your emotional states, 
over and over again. And the first time somebody challenges you on it, you start to think about it. So again, this is a little cheesy example, but right, do you have problems or do you have challenges? The way you want to look at it is yeah. the way. So if you're the one walking around, so I've got this problem, I've got that problem, and then somebody says, wait a minute, wait a minute, do you have a problem or do you have a challenge? Right. Well, challenge implies that it's solvable, right? Ah, oh, that changes the possibilities. Now, the whole point of that is getting them to look at their language first, and when you do it once with that area, then they start to look at their automatic thoughts and the things that come out of their mouth. Hmm. And they start to realize how much influence it has on their, their day-to-day reality and their day-to-day relationship. So you are your words because your thoughts, whatever you say, whatever you're thinking, that's really who you are. I, I think you, Actually, I think you're more than your thoughts. And I think you're more than your behaviors, but we get, um, coming back to habits, we get in certain habits with our, with our thoughts and our words, right? Why does it always happen to me? You know, that's a, that's a really negative question, right? And what it does is it brings my focus on all my failures. Exactly. That's going back to the, to Dylan seeing the same car three times. Yeah. Is it, that's what he's focusing on? That's what he's seeing kind of expects it. Well, not necessarily. So, you know, it's not like Dylan's mind has the ability to, to control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Control. Okay. Um, but I'll tell you where Dylan will get really messed up. Okay. Maybe Dylan starts to look and goes, Hmm, you know what? That guy, that guy doesn't care whether I live or die. That's why he's driving recklessly. He's putting my life at danger, mm. right? This guy is an asshole, right? This guy is, and this guy is, and this guy is. And you start ascribing all these meanings. And pretty soon you get four or five meanings, and, and what? And next time you see that car, you're, yeah, yeah. you're seeing red. Or not even right. that specific car, the car that looks similar to the car. that mm-hmm. It's not even that specific car, just a car that looks similar, same model, same color. Yeah, it'll trigger you. Yeah. Yeah. It'll trigger you. If you really want to get messed up you know, and, and get into a state that you can't get out of, you start applying meaning to it that isn't necessarily true. So psychologists do this trick. Well, we start asking questions to try and get, well, you know, is that really true? Hmm. Do, you, do you really know that about that person? Is that person really trying to kill you? Maybe that's a little old grandmother who can't see. <laughs> right. yeah. uh, let me give you a story. This is a Stephen Covey story. Stephen Covey wrote um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And um, one that I just I love, you know, he talks about how you can change an emotional state in an instance. And he tells a story about this woman in an airport. Um, she went and bought a bag of cookies and she opens up and, you know, sets down. This guy's next to him and um, she's eating a cookie and, you know, the guy reaches over and eats one of her cookies, pulls it out of the bag just without asking her anything. And she's just like, what did this guy just do? The audacity. He just took my cookie, right? So she takes another cookie because she's too embarrassed to say anything. And then the guy takes another cookie, right? At this point, she's going like, what is going on with this guy? And she goes through this whole mental process, this whole psychological process of ascribing meaning to what this guy you know, is stealing her cookies and, and just how dare he do that, right? And he gets out the last cookie and he reaches in, he takes the last cookie and he breaks it in half and gives her half. <laughs> oh, man, right? And then he politely gets up, goes away. And then she looks down and she finds her bag of cookies. <laughs> yeah. I love that story. So I love the expression on your face there, Dylan, right? Okay, right? So, So where did your emotions go? To that last punchline, how did they shift? Well, okay, so 
I hadn't heard that story before. Um, and so my initial thought was, first of all, I was like, well, that guy's a jerk. <laughs> like, well, at least he's kind enough to split the last three with her. And then I was like, oh, wow. Like, she, she completely was wrapped up in her response mm-hmm. that she missed that she wasn't even eating her own cookies. She was, yeah. she was taking it from the guys. Yeah. Bed. Can you imagine how her emotional state changed in an instant? It's a shame. I'm sure. Yeah. Shame and embarrassment. Yeah. 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 She was putting all these meanings right. in that weren't true. Right. But this is so, this is a great example because we do this all the time. Mm. We do it all the time. I'll give you another example that actually happened to Stephen Covey. And I, and I love this one. And he was on the train home, um, you know, in the subway and, there was this dad and five kids, and they were just going nuts, and they were jumping all around and whatever. And, you know, Covey was trying to be real cool about it, but they were being, you know, unruly, and, you know, it was bugging him. And finally, you know, he just had, you know, this guy's not paying to his kid. He says, why don't you do something about your kids? And he goes, and I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. You know, um, I just, we came from the hospital, and their mother just died. And honestly, they don't know how to deal with it, and I don't know how to deal with it either. All right. Right. So you see how your emotions can change in an instant. Your emotional state can change in an instant when you have other information. So being a good adult, one of the first things you should ask is, what don't I know about this situation? What else could it be? That'll slow you down a little bit from doing something stupid before you open your mouth. Right. That was a very specific question in the the Stoic um, Journal was, I'm paraphrasing, but basically, is what I'm about to say worth saying, or is it necessary? Mm-hmm. And because you, before, especially in response, if you respond in anger, before you shout at someone, is there a reason they are talking to you the way they are, or acting the way they are? And is it worth you interjecting whatever you're about to say mm-hmm. into the the world, mm-hmm. or is it better just to take a minute, figure out why you're about to respond that way? maybe get more information and learn that there's some serious stuff going on with them mm-hmm. that you didn't see at the angle you're looking at change your angle, change your perspective. Mm-hmm. And then you have the answer and then you would, you avoid a situation that could spiral out of control because you responded too rash, too quickly yeah. and you made a mistake. Yeah. And this is what's key to being able to swim through that sewer mm-hmm. and come out smelling clean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, I think it's a good note because we're right. at nine thirty. So, I, All right, that's enough. I love you. Yeah, that'd be great. Let me uh, go ahead and well, wrap it up. I say we say a few things. We we, uh, we can edit right there that little chunk that we're obviously talking about right now. But yeah, um, and uh, you want to speak about your website real quick? You want to give anything about or any information? The website is com. It's all one word. Um, please, I'm, I'm teaching the uh, beginning classes at Delview Park Wednesday at uh, 6.30 for adults. Uh, adults and kids, um, Saturday at 9 a.m. So, love to have you. Shoot me an email. Um, you could also get uh, Total Confidence Martial Arts on uh, Facebook. Okay. And uh, happy to answer any questions. And Yeah. Awesome. Well, I, I had awesome fun on this podcast. It was a great learning too, experience. Thank you very much for inviting me. And uh, Dylan, I'll let you sign off this time. All right. Uh, thanks for being with us. I appreciate it. Um, I had a lot of fun and learned a lot and thought a lot. So I will see you tomorrow at class. <laughs>